I got that fixed. Uh, but we're going to be looking at this today. Three different sets of scriptures. We're going to get there really quick. Uh, we'll be in John 19 right here off the bat. So we're looking at the, the, the question, what was finished at the cross? What was finished at the cross? We know next week is Resurrection Sunday. Really, we celebrate the resurrection every Sunday, but excuse me, we make a specific emphasis on Easter to, to make sure that we're looking at that. So we're looking at what had to happen first today for there to be a resurrection. I love Resurrection Sunday. I love Easter weekend. Um, but the cross had to happen first. And why is that? What was finished? What took place as we get into that today? So today's kind of like this. It's kind of like those movies that start at the end. Do you like those kind of movies? Like the scene opens or the TV show or whatever, and it opens, and it's, it's telling a part of the story, and then you realize you're actually at the end of the story, not too long right there, and then you jump back, right, and you get the whole rest of the story. And then, like one of my favorite movies of all time, really, but one of my favorite movies that does this, Forrest Gump, right? It starts with him on the bench telling his story, and then he goes back and tells you the whole story. Well, then, like most good movies, there's a little bit more, right? So that's where we'll be today. So we're going to start at the end, then we'll go back and look through it, and then there'll be a little bit more as we get finished today. So what was finished at the cross? We just sang about it. We talk about it often, but let's really dig into it today. We'll be in John 19 first. It says, After this, when Jesus knew that everything was now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was sitting there. So they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on hyssop and held it up to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. A few things there real quick, just for free. First, it says, I'm thirsty. Jesus showing his humanity here. Yes, he's, yes, he's God, but he is fully human as well. And he experienced everything that it is to be fully human. Even the grief and the burden of sin that he bore on the cross. So Jesus knows what it is to be human. And I always find comfort in that verse there. I'm thirsty. You would have been thirsty as well. And they give him some vinegar, some vinegar wine is what it would be like, uh, and it, just to wet his mouth. And then he says, it is finished. He says, realizing that it all had been accomplished, he said he was thirsty, and then he says, it is finished. Now, you've heard numerous sermons, I have no doubt, because I've heard numerous sermons. If you've spent any time in church, if you're new to church, then, then you're going to hear some things you've never heard before today. But if, you're, if you've come to church most of your life, you've heard this word talking about this. To die, to die. That is the Greek word that is translated here into the English. It is finished. To die. It's a word full of a lot of meaning. It means a lot of things. And sometimes the English doesn't completely, I don't think, completely give that full picture of what the word would, would carry, the connotations it would carry in Greek. But you've heard that it, it means finished, to be finished or to be completed. One way that it was used in Jesus' day cool side note, we actually have documents that have this word on it, receipts from back in the day, business transactions, in other words, that have this word on it, tetelestai, tetelestai, because it means paid in full. That was the way that it was used very often. It was an accounting term that you placed on a receipt where you owed a debt, and then when you paid the debt, it was stamped tetelestai. It was stamped paid in full. So one way to say 
what is this debt that Jesus is, is paying? And, and, and why did Jesus have to come to the cross? And what is finished, right? What is finished? What, what does Jesus mean when he says that? It means a whole lot of things. But really, basically, as simply as we can, hopefully, what does it mean? Well, Luke says it this way when talking about why Jesus came. Why Jesus came. Jesus said, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus says his mission many different ways, but that is one of my favorite ways. He came to seek that which was lost. Because he's the good shepherd. And sheep without a good shepherd ain't got a chance. They got no chance at all. They're lost and they're broken. And I say, well, what was lost? Right? I like to ask questions. If you haven't ever figured that out, I like to ask questions because that's how you learn. So when he says he came to seek and say that which was lost, then what was lost? Fundamentally, what was lost was mankind's fellowship with God. And that's, it. that's all. That's, that's everything. That is the entire problem with our broken world. Is fellowship with God has been broken. And fellowship with God has been broken because of one three-letter word. And what that represents. And what is that one three-letter word? Everybody knows it's sin. Sin broke our fellowship with God. And without fellowship with God, we are lost. We are like a sheep without a shepherd. A sheep without a shepherd is defenseless. A sheep without a shepherd is directionless. And a sheep without a shepherd is hopeless. And that's what mankind is because of sin if it weren't for Jesus. So when we say mankind's fellowship was broken with God... Get the full grasp of that. God is life. He is the reason there is life. He is what holds all this together. He spoke our lives into existence. He spoke all things into existence. He holds it together. He holds it up. He is life. Fellowship with God is life. Sin separates us from fellowship. If you're here this morning and you've already placed your faith in Jesus... Your current sin is affecting your fellowship with God. My current sin is affecting my fellowship with God. Sin separates us from fellowship. Therefore, sin causes death. If you spent five seconds in a a Sunday school classroom or come here on Wednesday nights or, or any other time, you have heard that. You know that sin causes death. So catch it. No fellowship, no life. Because life comes from God. No fellowship, no life. So then no sin equals fellowship with God. Fellowship with God equals life. That's the problem. And that's the problem that Jesus is saying that he fixed. That's what he's saying is finished. We know this verse right here, it says it this way. For the wages of sin is death. Many of you have memorized the Roman road. Right, How to walk people through that you're a sinner and you need a Savior because of that. The wages of sin is death. That's only the first half of the verse. We'll get to the second half next week. <laughs> and this is one of the best halves of any verse in all of Scripture. But the wages of sin is death. Now catch that. Catch that. What are wages? Some of us that are younger may, may not hear that term very often. It's, it's something that, that I don't know, that many people know, but maybe you don't know. Wages is just a payment that is owed, right? You work a job for wages. Something happens, 
Something's owed. That which is owed is a wage. So the thing that is paid because of sin is death. But, but catch what Jesus is saying there. How, how unbelievable is God's word, right? The wages of sin is death. But on the cross at the end, before he breathed his last, Jesus said, the wages of sin may be death, but those wages have been paid in full to Telestai. We cannot overemphasize the importance of that statement and everything that that encompasses this morning. To tell us die, finished, complete, paid in full. But again, I like to ask questions. But why the cross? Right? If there was a sin debt that had to be paid, how do we understand and know that the cross is where it had to be paid? Well, there's hundreds of places we could look for that that talk about that and we're not going to cover that completely this morning there's no way I could do that in one message but just on a very basic fundamental level why the cross we go to two places first Leviticus 17 11 right this is the the, the priest's handbook right this is how you do sacrifice how you do all that stuff for the for the ancient ancient Israelites for the life of the flesh is in the Blood. You know, science didn't catch up to that till, till about the 1800s. Just throwing that out there. And I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. Given what? Blood. Flesh. The life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement. Whew, that's a big word. For your souls. For it is the blood. It is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Okay? Again. Hebrews 9.22 says it a little more plainly. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. There must be a payment for wrong. If there is no payment for wrong, then there is no justice. And we know that because when we're wronged, we fundamentally intrinsically know that there should be something done to make up for when something's done wrong to us. But for some reason, we kind of brush aside the fact that God, who made everything, would want something done for the fact that his creation has rejected him. It's not a selfish desire for justice. It's not a mean old man in the sky that's mad because you stepped on his lawn desire for justice that's not what it is it's a righteous anger for the brokenness that sin has caused his creation there must be a payment for wrong and even before the mosaic law you go all the way back to the beginning the shedding of blood is what pays for that wrong because when Adam and Eve realized that they were standing there in their birthday suit, the first thing God did was sacrifice an innocent animal to cover up their nakedness. Showing us right then from the very beginning that blood must be shed because there's nothing greater you can give than that to pay for sin. So wrath, justice, terms that are brushed aside in modern society. But they can't be. They, they can't be brushed aside. If you don't understand this, you don't get any of it. You don't understand how important it was. You don't understand the, the magnitude of what Jesus did on the cross unless you understand that a righteous God, creator God, had 
to incur wrath on what it was that had rejected him. He had to. There has to be justice. And think about this. Think about this. Historically speaking, Jesus died about the bloodiest death you could possibly die. I mean, think about it if, if, if obviously God knew exactly when to do what he did. But think about it if it were happening in our, our, our days and times, right? When someone has to give up their life for something they've done. They've murdered someone, so they have to give up their life. We don't do it on the cross. Good Lord, our delicate sensibilities couldn't handle that these days. We'd fold up and, and fold. Oh, my goodness. We had people that were so, I mean, they, oh, I don't want to chase this rabbit. We had people that were commenting on social media that they were so upset days after a slap at the Academy Awards. <sighs> right? Today we do it a little more humanely than that, right? What, what if Jesus sacrificed now and it was through lethal injection? Does that make the same point that dying on a cross does? Does that, does that ring out throughout history the way dying on a cross does? Not just dying on a cross, but being scourged. Right? Beaten. Bloodied. Right? The, 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 the term that Peter uses when he says, by his stripes we were healed, it actually, when Peter says that in the New Testament, quoting from the Old Testament, it says, by his stripe we are healed. As in, the, 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 the damage on his back and on his body was one big stripe. It wasn't stripes. It was just beaten to a pulp. It was as bloody as it could be. I don't think that that was on accident. I think God was showing how much blood had to be shed for the amount of sin that God was going to cover up with that. So how does Jesus do that? Literally, how does that work? In theological terms, we go to our second scripture today, Romans 3.23, 3.25. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely, they being all, by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a propitiation through faith in His blood. Catch that. I'm going to say it again. God presented Him as a propitiation through faith in His teaching. Is that what it says? Through faith in His miracles. Through faith in how awesome of a guy He was. No. Through faith in what? His blood. Because nothing takes away sin except for the shedding of innocent blood. To demonstrate his righteousness, not yours and not mine. He demonstrated his righteousness because his restraint, because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. That's a cool term right there in and of itself. When did Jesus die on the cross? What, what was going on in the world at the time? What was the celebration? What was the festival? Somebody said it. It was Passover, right? It was Passover. That's not lost on Paul here as he's talking to the Romans. <laughs> this blood is shed and God has passed over our sins just like he did for them in the 10th plague all the way back when they were leaving Egypt. It all ties together. The whole, the whole book's about Jesus. I don't know if you ever noticed that or not. The whole thing's about Jesus. It ain't Old Testament, New Testament. One's about Jesus and one's about some mean old God. That's not what it is. The whole thing is about the Son of God, Jesus, our God. I'm getting fired up this morning. <clears throat> that word propitiation in the, in the Greek 
is hilasterion. Hilasterion. That's the word right there. Okay? And it's got different forms and it's used different ways in the New Testament as in you know, like an action verb and, and conjugated different ways. But that word hilasterion right there is the word that, that we use in English most of the time, propitiation. The Hebrew word, so if you look at the Septuagint, which is the Greek Bible, right, translated in 300-ish B.C. from the Hebrew into the Greek because of Alexander the Great. Crazy how God uses these things. The, the, the Old Testament, the Hebrew word was kafar, kafar. And that was talking about literally, physically, the atonement cover, the mercy seat. We talked about that a few weeks back at the beginning of our Sermon on the Mount series. The atonement cover, the mercy seat, the thing that where, that where, the, where the priest on the day of atonement went in and placed the blood on the atonement cover, the mercy seat. Right? And what was contained inside of that, the Ark of the Covenant, the, Mo, the Law of Moses, the cherubim are, 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 are swooped over the top of that atonement cover. Okay? So the physical, literal thing is the atonement cover or the mercy seat. But, but it's also used figuratively and literally at the same time. It's the same thing. Jesus' blood was placed on the atonement cover. Not literally, but in actuality, what he did. He was atoning for our skin. That, that, that English word is a brilliant word given to us by Wycliffe. at one made at one with God, atoned for, right? So it's literally the mercy seat. It's literally the atonement cover, same thing. But figuratively, the concept is propitiation. That's another word we use for it in English. And, and propitiation means, catch this, propitiation means appeasing wrath and gaining the goodwill of an offended person. Catch that. Hear that again? Propitiation means incurring wrath and gaining the goodwill of the offending person. Appeasing the wrath somehow, some way. Right? It's like when your buddy comes at you like this, you're like, no, 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 I'm so sorry, sorry, sorry. I was wrong. Right? You just appeased his wrath before he got punched. Okay? Now that's a silly example, but you put that on the grandest scale you could possibly think of, and that's what we're talking about here. And it's not because he's, again, mean or selfish or, or any sinful human emotion we can put on it. But think about it when you are righteously wronged, how you feel. Parents, you gave your child life, literally, right? And you work and you toil and you try and then you say, don't do that. And invariably, they do that, whatever that is. I remember the first time that happened as a parent. It's an awful feeling. It's the worst feeling ever. It's like, but I just said don't do that. Like, what? And then you remember all the times you did that when they said don't do that? But that feeling you have as a parent, that's a just anger. That's not wrong. You have the authority to say don't do that, and they still did that. Now, think about how God feels. Why wouldn't, why wouldn't he have anger? Why wouldn't there be wrath that needs to incur? It's not like we picture it because of Hollywood and all this other stuff. It's righteous. It's, things have to be made right. Sometimes all it takes human to human is just sincerely saying you're sorry. That's, that's all it takes sometimes. Sometimes it takes more than that. Sometimes you've got to buy a car or something. I don't know. Some of you husbands know what I'm talking about. But understand this. 
You cannot and will not understand the great love of God without understanding the great price that had to be paid for sin. God's righteous, justified, worthy wrath had to be satisfied. And it should have been put on you and me because we were the offending party. But it wasn't. That's love. So never separate the wrath of God from the love of God because without the, both of them, you don't understand the full picture. Jesus took that full, justified, godly wrath when he was on the cross. The punishment. Not just the physical punishment. God's literal wrath placed on him. The burden of mankind's sin placed on him. What does that feel like? When you mess up, what's one of the first things you do? Especially if you're younger, but even as an adult, what do you do? That first thing you do when you mess up, what's one of the first things we physically do? Why? Because there's a burden that comes with doing the wrong thing. There's a burden that comes with sin. And Jesus felt it all when he was on the cross. First John says it this way. Talking about atonement, propitiation. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Think about it. Not just those that have placed faith in him. That would have been amazing enough. I'm only dying for those that will place faith in me. For those that will actually accept what I have done for them. No. That's not just the sins he felt. He felt every single sin ever. The burden, the wrath, all of it. Even and especially the ones that would not accept him. Hitler and Stalin. All of them. He felt the wrath for their sins as well. Knowing they wouldn't choose him. If that's a God, I'll worship. That's a God I'll show up here and sing as if I actually care about what he did. Not like I'm still asleep. I won't chase that rabbit. So Jesus' blood atones. It atones. Death is gone. What does that mean for us? Because the original problem was fellowship is broken. And we get to our third scripture for today. 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5, Paul talking to the Corinthians. Therefore, we are ambassadors, representatives with the same power and authority. That's what ambassadors are. We are ambassadors for Christ. Certain that God is appealing through us. We plead on Christ's behalf to a dying sinful world. Be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for you and me. That is us. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Amen. What does it mean that sin has been forgiven? That Jesus has taken away the sins of the world? It means that you and me were once enemies of God. Enemies of God. But because of what Jesus did, we are now made at peace with God. That's what it means to be reconciled, to be made at peace with. Through his love, through his justice, we are reconciled to him. 
And because of that, Paul says right here, two verses before where we are, because of that, he says it backwards from the way I would have said it, but probably better. Because of that, we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. We have been given the responsibility to go to the world and let the world know that they can be made at peace with God. He has reconciled. He desires reconciliation. He desires peace between us and him. Now, remember this. This ain't in the notes, and I won't chase it very long. If God desires that relationship, that, that to happen with us, reconciliation, us to him, and he was willing to go to the lengths in which he went to to make that happen, and we best express our love for God by love for each other, how much do you think God desires for us to be reconciled with each other? And not just each other, but a world that rejects them. Again, that ain't in the notes, but it's something to think about. If we got this, we talked about it last week. If we've got this heart, then we probably ain't living the way God wants us to live. We probably don't have the heart that he wants us to have. So back on track. To tell us die. <laughs> One word says all of that. To tell us die. Finished. Complete. Paid in full. Your sin debt. My sin debt. All sin debt. Past, present, and future. All of it. Paid in full. Death defeated. Jesus took my place on the cross. That's the gospel. That's the gospel, church. It don't get any better than that. That's good news. God loves you enough to reconcile to you, you to him. But he did it in a way that you didn't even have to pay for it. All you got to do is say, yep, that's it. That's what I trust. That's my hope. I'm placing my faith in you, God. That you really are that good. That you really do love me like that. That Jesus really did do that. He really was crucified. He really was buried. He really did resurrect on the third day. Whew. Jesus reconciled me to God the Father. I was once an enemy. But now I'm found at peace with God. And so are you if you place your faith in Jesus. But if you haven't, you're sitting here today. An enemy of God. An enemy of God. And righteously so. Through Jesus' substitutionary atonement. That's the big theological term. He substituted himself for you and for me. Through his substitutionary atonement. I have peaceful fellowship with God. Sin and death. Broken fellowship with God is defeated. To Tetelestai. One word. Man, it means a lot. To Tetelestai. That's the gospel. It don't get no better. I know that it's not good English. Miss Gray will get on, to me. She'll get on to me for that. It don't get no better than that. It don't get no better. That's, that's just how it is, and it don't get no easier. It don't get any better. But understand this. Jesus took away the righteous punishment and the power of sin for the faithful believer, but he has yet to take away the presence of sin. Say that again. Jesus took away the righteous punishment and the power of sin for the faithful believer. The faithful believer no longer has punishment for sin, and sin no longer has power 
over the faithful believer. But he has yet to take away the presence of sin. Sin and evil are still present in this world. They're still allowed by choice to show the fullness of God's grace. But there is coming a day when that shall cease as well. And if we were in Forrest Gump, this is when he would be going to find Jenny. Right? We've already, all right, we're caught back up. Now, now what? Right? Where are we today? We're in Palm Sunday. What happened on Palm Sunday? Jesus arrived as the king. Right? About a week before the, resurrec- before the resurrection. John 12 says it this way. The next day, when the large crowd that had come to the festival that heard Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took the palm branches out and went out to meet him. They kept shouting, Hosanna, he who comes in the name of the Lord is the blessed one, the king of Israel. Hosanna, Savior, save us, rescue us, victory. That word Hosanna had come to mean all those things. You said one word, but it meant all that. Rescue us, king of Israel, save us, king of Israel, victory to king of Israel. Finally, Jesus is going to come beat the Romans. That's what they thought. That's what they were screaming for. And, and honestly, you would have been screaming for the same thing because the Romans were not very cool. But then in, a week later, they've killed him because he didn't do what they thought he should do. But it only in there. We're going to finish in Revelation and I'm done. We're done for this morning. Revelation chapter 5, the whole all of Revelation, John has given a vision of heaven. And the final judgment that is to come before everything is made completely right again. And that judgment, John tells us in chapter 5, is written on a scroll. And it's sealed up with seven seals. Because can't just anybody properly administer judgment. Only one can properly administer godly, justified, righteous judgment. That judgment written on that scroll must be released a portion at a time. But, but nobody is worthy to open it. John's got this vision into heaven, and God's letting him see what it's going to look like when it all comes to fruition like that. And nobody can do it. And John starts not crying, not tearing up, weeping. Why? Because at that moment, it's, oh no, sin and evil can't be conquered completely and totally. Unless somebody can judge what needs to happen. Unless somebody can open the seals. And then, and then in chapter 5, an elder comes up to him. One of the 24 elders and says, hey, stop crying, you big crybaby. No, he didn't say that. He just says, stop crying. Look. Look. Here comes the lion of the tribe of Judah. Here comes the victorious king. And he can open it. And then John documents that this victorious king where this elder pointed looks like the slaughtered lamb of God. He's still bearing his sacrificial wounds. He's still bearing the proof for why he can stand there and do what he's about to do. And bearing those marks of his sacrifice makes him worthy. And then it says this in John in Revelation 5:8. When he that the lamb Jesus, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. When he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. 
Each one had a harp and gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. That's awesome. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open the seals. Because you were slaughtered. You redeemed people for God. By your, everybody, blood. From every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priest to our God. And they will reign on the earth. And then they're halfway through the judgment. And check this out. Revelation 7. They were robed. This is those that have, that have, that have come to faith during this time. They were robed in white with what? Palm branches. <laughs> In their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God. He is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. They thought it was time when he came in the first time, but then they killed him. <laughs> but come to find out, there's going to be another Palm Sunday. It's going to be a whole lot better than the first one. And it's actually going to happen then. Sin is going to be wiped out forever. Evil is going to be wiped out forever. Satan and his demons are thrown in the lake of fire forever. <laughs> Can't wait for that day. I'm sick and tired of it. Sick and tired of what sin causes in this world. How does all that happen? The cross. To tell us die. Without the cross doesn't happen. Here's the way Paul says it in 1 Corinthians, and we'll finish. This is the last one. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Mention the cross nowadays and see what reaction you get. But it is God's power to us who are being saved. It is God's power to us who are being saved. Kublai Khan, I don't know if you know him, back in the day, the Mongolians, right? He told Marco Polo, he said, he was holding the cross and kind of looking at it like this, and he said, your religion is the only one that took an instrument of death and made it into an instrument of life, something to be celebrated. Think about that. That's the cross. Jesus did it, not you. Jesus did it, not you. Jesus did it, not you. Not your church membership, not your giving to this church, not your Bible reading, not your prayers. None of that. None of the stuff that you think makes you good to God is what gets you to the final judgment and in right standing with God. None of it. Jesus did it. Now, we do all that stuff because Jesus did it, but we don't do it to be worthy. We aren't worthy. We do it because he has given us his worth through what Jesus did on the cross. Now, when we celebrate the resurrection next week, that's a good day. But remember what it cost and took to get there, it took the cross. And it took a, a God-man doing it all. All hundreds of prophecies that were prophesied about him. And when he had feel, fulfilled all of them, and all that was left for, was for God the Father to bring him back to life, after he proved he had died, he said to Telestai, it's finished. <laughs> That's awesome. So one thing. I'm going to give you one thing that you're going to be mad at me for. The cross cost, right? Cost a lot. Sacrifice. So I'm going to challenge us. This has been on my heart for several weeks. I'm going to challenge us. And if, and if you're on a social media person, then I challenge you to fix something else. But I'm going to challenge us this week. Some of you are getting antsy already. 
take this stupid thing out, me included, because I'm as bad as anybody, and by 6 p.m. tonight, delete all those social media apps off of it. Every one of them. Write down your password, because half of you don't know what it is. Find out what your password is. And for a week, let's fast from social media. From 6 p.m. tonight to 6 p.m. next Sunday night. But not just to do it, just to say we did it. But every time you pick this forsaken thing up and go to look at something, because you will, probably 10 seconds after you delete it, when you pick it up and you, and you think that you're about to, then you remember why you're fasting, here's what I want us to do. Just this simple. Every time that happens for a week, I want us to pray this prayer. God, break my heart for what breaks yours. Break my heart for what breaks yours. In Jesus' name, amen. That's it. That's it. Again, if you're not a social media person, then pick something else. Pick food, Forrest. I'm kidding. Don't do that. You, would, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't make it. <laughs> God, break my heart for what breaks yours. And if we do that, I have a feeling that we'll come in next Sunday a little different than we came into this Sunday. The deacons will come up. We're going to have the Lord's Supper. As they come up, remember, <laughs> everything we just talked about is what we're celebrating. It's a celebration now. His body, his blood, that's what we're partaking in this morning. What he did for us on the cross to tell us die. It is finished.